0: An all-star CNBC correspondent and author joins us to discuss ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino's first big interview, whether AI will really change Hollywood, and plenty more of this week's news right after this.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
0: Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday edition, where we break down the news in our traditional cool-headed and nuanced format. We have an amazing guest joining us today. Julia Borstin is here. She's a senior media and technology correspondent at CNBC and the author of When Women Lead, What We Achieve, Why We Succeed, and What We Can Learn. We're going to talk about all that and more. Julia, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's always so fun to talk to you on CNBC. Now I'm talking <laughs> to you on your turf.
0: Yeah, it's so great to have you on the show. Um, it was really great catching up with you at CNBC's uh, CEO Summit a few months back. Um, and I think the podcast has like a parade of guests that have come on from that event. So I really enjoyed that and I'm glad to have a chance to speak with you at length here
2: i'm so happy to be here a big fan of the podcast always happy to interview you on cnbc so (laughs) glad to have the tables turned
0: awesome great well let's turn those tables then so um to bring everything together cnbc had linda yaccarino who's the ceo of x formerly known as twitter on for an interview this week she explained whether you know she was actually running the show or elon was running the show she talked about the business model she talked about the strategy Okay, I came away a little bit confused not because of Sarah Eisen's questioning, but because of Linda's answers. And generally, I'm, you know, she comes from the ad world, you know, I started my career in advertising. I'm willing to hear what she has to say. Um, but there was a little bit of confusion in the fact that she talked about X being an everything app and X being this place for real-time communication. And it's like you can be, that's my perspective, you can be an everything app, you can be the real-time app. It's really tough to be both. I'm kind of curious what your reaction was to her comments.
2: Well, I thought the interview was great. My colleague Sarah Eisen did a great job, and I agree that there are various points of confusion to come out of this. I, I saw that CNN um, had criticized Linda's comments as not being effectively accurate. Though it's hard to say; it's a private company. We don't have the numbers. We don't know exactly what's going on there. Um, I thought that everything app thing is interesting. The reality is, is that we just don't have everything apps in the U.S. the way they have them in Asia, and I think that Elon Musk has made it pretty clear that he'd love to have an everything app. Um, but we just ha- we don't have a model for that in terms of US use cases. Um, so it's incredibly ambitious. She talked about how the X rebrand was part of that ambition. It separates them from their legacy. They're going to be able to do more things if they're not tied to that very familiar brand of Twitter, which, by the way, is an incredibly valuable brand. And that was the, the question she faced, like, why ditch something so iconic and valuable and it really came into this idea of being an everything app. Um, Linda, to me, sent a very clear message to advertisers. Right, her job is to to she has a, a had a great run at at NBC Universal, CNBC's parent company, my parent company. You know, bringing advertisers on board, infusing the company with technology and the way it targets and measures ads. And her job at Twitter, I see, is being first and foremost reassuring advertisers that this is a safe effective platform and a place where they can confidently put their money. And I think she was very consistent in that message. I mean, Elon is a, Musk is a live wire. I mean, he's so unpredictable. And she was speaking very slowly, very intentionally. Even her tone to me was trying to communicate this is, is I'm someone you could trust and this is a platform you could trust.
0: Do you think av- advertisers are going to hear that message and believe her and respond? I mean, also like, I'm curious what you think, I'm going to ask a two-parter here because part of the reticence of advertisers to get on board with Twitter is the fact that the tech doesn't work so well. So it is kind of interesting. I mean, I guess they've lost, they don't really have those bottom of the funnel advertisers and they had like some success with the branding advertisers. So, you know, now those branding advertisers, I don't know if there's been a real pullback or they're just like in their own year of efficiency and trying to spend where the money works best. But I am curious how you think this will land with Madison Avenue.
2: Everyone's in their year of efficiency, right? It was. Yeah, um, totally. uh, Mark Zuckerberg said it first, but everyone's in it. You know, I was at the Cannes Advertising Festival in June Mm -hmm. and I was asking people, you know, obviously Twitter was not there. Um, uh, Lindy Akrina was not there for the first time in over a decade. And I said, are people gonna respond to her? Like, what's, what's the word on the street? And I actually asked this question, both of Twitter and also of TikTok, because both have these, you know, different, slightly different concerns. Twitter, to me, the question is brand safety. Is this a place where you wanna have your brand? Are you worried about hate speech? Are you worried about the the reported dramatic increase in hate speech? And ultimately people said, people will spend money on ads if the ads really work. Exactly. And I think there was this a period, and it doesn't mm-hmm. really, they're like, hate speech, yes, that's problematic, but the ads won't work if they're next to hate speech. Um, TikTok China concerns, if they're working, we're gonna be on, the plat- on TikTok until TikTok gets shut down, if it does get shut down. So, I think fundamentally what this means for, for Twitter is that there was this question of whether the ads were working. And, they, and especially with brand advertising, it's much harder to measure that efficacy. Direct response advertising is so much easier to measure. And I think that um, Lindy Iacarino, who did a lot on, on measurement at NBC Universal, is going to try to do the same. The fact that she announced that they're going to bring back this ad council indicates to to me that she's really trying to engage with advertisers. So I think that's going to work. I think advertisers did not like that. Elon Musk so publicly derided them and and said he didn't care about their perspectives. (laughs) And I think that I I think that people remember Linda's power and NBC Universal and would like Twitter to work. That's the other thing is advertisers want these other platforms. There's the digital duopoly. One thing I heard a lot about in Canada and I continue to hear about is that they would love to have more options. They're thrilled that TikTok seems to be so effective. They want to have options other than Meta and Google simply because those are the two platforms that have dominated the digital ads landscape for so long. And it's better for the brands if they have more places to go, especially as TV advertising sees a shrinking, um, you know, sort of a shrinking market.
0: Yeah, one of the things Twitter's done recently, I think it's been sort of underappreciated, is that they've uh, changed the sponsored label. To one that you could hardly find, which is ad, and I know a lot of people who've, who've like come to me and been like, I clicking, I'm clicking on Twitter ads accidentally now because the ad label is now in the top right corner, and I guess that's one lever. That you can pull is you can just you totally know, sort of the, the disclosure yeah
2: but does that does that
0: i don't think it's a wise move term, you know
2: short-term gain but yeah. long-term challenges probably um and then also our consumers going to be frustrated and be less likely to engage on the platform i mean there's so many times when it comes to twitter i wish that it would sort of go public again, so I could read its S one. You know, I I'm a mm-hmm. huge dork who loves to read S ones, and I would love to read the S one of this company right now.
1: Oh man, um, so. you know, obviously, yeah.
2: The, yeah, the risk factors, all of those different things. But yeah, I think there there are different levers to pull. But and I think right now the one that that Lindy Yacarino is pulling is like getting the advertisers to sit down with her and make and making them feel like she's listening to them, which is something that has been gone for the past nine months.
0: So do you think it's going to work?
2: I, I I can't predict. Yeah, Too to many say. wild cards. Yeah. I, I mean, do you think that Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are gonna fight in the Coliseum? Like I don't even I'm know starting how to, to think that even they ask are ask that question, let alone
0: answer it. <laughs> I'm starting to think that their egos are so large that they at this point the one it's like a game of chicken, right? The one that pulls out <laughs> is all of a sudden gonna be the loser. So I think they're just like their animosity towards each other and the fact that like people are encouraging them to do this will bring them to whether it's the Coliseum or the Octagon, they're gonna go for it. That's my prediction.
2: We live in an unpredictable world. So if that's happening, it's hard to predict whether or not um, t- the Twitter, um, otherwise known as X, will will thrive as a platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing's for sure, Lindy Acarino, if that does happen, we'll use that cage match as a marketing
1: opportunity.
0: No doubt about X. it. You know, one thing that I think is also being underappreciated about Twitter, they have now lowered the threshold to pay creators from 15 million impressions over three months to 5 million. Impressions over over three months. Basically, it means if you're tweeting and you're getting a decent amount of reach, five million impressions is tough to reach, but not impossible. I feel like we've both done it um, or do it consistently. Like then you will get a cut of the ad revenue coming in. And these platforms now you see there's Twitter, there's Threads, there's you know Blue Sky, whatever. There's uh, um, you know all the ones on the right. Um, and you you know cutting in creators is I think a brilliant move because it's ultimately gonna keep people posting on this platform. And and ultimately the platform is all about the people. And that's an issue that, that Twitter yep. has not really learned, hadn't really learned under previous leadership. And I, I don't know, it seems like they're gonna have a more vibrant platform because all these people are getting cut in on the deal.
2: I, I totally agree. I mean, I think this fight for creators is what we're seeing play out, whether it's with YouTube, we'll see it with threads. It's obviously key to what's going on right now with Instagram and TikTok. And I think what's interesting about Twitter is that they hadn't really fostered that that creator ecosystem. And now maybe it's in light of the, the writers and actors strikes or, or all of these different factors, but I think that's where the attention is shifting. Um, and it needs to be a safe place for those creators also. I mean, I think when you talk about trust and safety and the, all these teams that were fired under Elon Musk, and now Lindy Akron is trying to bring back, you need a safe environment, not just for premium content, but also for creators. And I think that monetization piece is what will determine which of these platforms succeed.
1: Absolutely. Um,
2: and I think the Threads piece is interesting too. I mean, it was fascinating to see the rush of people onto Threads. I was one of those that first night, just like watching the Threads be posted um, and feeling like this was this is a real moment. And then you see the numbers drop off, and you, and you have to wonder what is it going to take to keep them. Keep people there, not just the big brands, not just following the tweets from the New York Times, but um, what's it going to take to keep the the real content generators there, who are maybe doing more than just posting headlines from newspaper articles.
0: Absolutely. So my perspective on this is that it has to be the algorithm, and that's the thing that really confused me about um, what Lindy Accurino was saying in this in this interview. By the way, I agree. Great interview. Um, it's like it's you know it's interesting to hear them kind of come out and talk about what matters to them and. I heard the word real or the words real time like uh, maybe ten times in the first five minutes of that conversation, and how like you're going to get twenty four seven FOMO if you're not on Twitter, but the algorithm really has shifted away from news, away from real time, and more towards chat GPT influencers, which I'm sure you've seen, and other sort of meme content. And Threads, Threads made a very interesting decision when they said, and I think this is a terrible decision that they made, that Facebook made when they said, we don't really care or want news actually the news and real-time information is going to be the way that these, these companies win. That's just my perspective. They added a following tab, you know, but it's all about how you adjust that for you algorithm that both of these platforms have. And I think the company that decides, okay, we're going to go all in on, on news, real-time information. We want to be the next platform where there's, let's say, you know, the plane that lands in the Hudson or the assassination of bin Laden. If you find this type of magnitude of news out first on our platform, that's going to be the one that that ends up winning. What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, and I think it, but it's like an expanded definition of news, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I remember um, there was like a little earthquake in LA and my first instinct, and this is years ago, my Mm -hmm. first instinct was like, I'm going to go to Twitter. That's where I go to find out if there was an earthquake or if a bomb just went off, what the hell is happening? Or you go to Twitter. And I think that my perspective has changed over time. You know, then I started following the US geological thing to announce it, you know, to let me know where the earthquakes actually were. And so it actually became a better place to follow expert sources. Um, but then it just became so crowded with other things and this definition of what is news. Like, There's only so much that to me feels meaningful as news. And I think the noise that Threads is trying to avoid is the opinion and anger that can be attached to pieces of news. And so there's a big difference between saying like what's actually happening right now to who's angry and yelling about what's Great happening point. right now. Yep. And I think that Twitter has become a lot more of the latter um, which is just a lot less uh, enjoyable to, to engage with, and I think that Threads is trying to be something a lot more adjacent to Instagram, which is more pleasant and less angry.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, the thing is, well,
2: and we'll see. We'll see if it works, and right. either could become more like the other.
0: Totally. And when that earthquake happens, you know, you want to see the news of it, like you mentioned. You don't want to see like how to be great at ChatGPT or. The latest dump yeah. that tied but I, I
2: actually only really want to follow i just really want to get the information from whatever the the local you know measurement agency is from an actual government agency and not from someone um speculating
0: about it yeah so speaking of earthquakes in la there's a big labor dispute going on in that part of the world um with hollywood uh writers and actors on strike and you know you're you've been covering this uh pretty in-depth. And I've really been pumped to um, that we were going to speak about it. And I've been waiting to have you on the show to discuss this. First of all, the talks are resuming today. Um, so yeah, that's perfect timing for us to be
2: talking. Yeah.
0: I wonder if it's like a distraction from like the actual core of what's going on. But the undercurrent has been whether AI is going to replace Hollywood actors and writers. And I don't know, when I hear about that, like I kind of think that like it's a Issue that the actors and writers are using to sort of uh, rally support to say we're going to be replaced and you're going to be replaced if you don't support us, and the studios are saying we're going to you know use this technology to replace you if you don't cave to our demands, but the technology isn't there yet, not anywhere close, at least from what I've seen. So it seems like they're just—it's a lot of talking about this issue, but the real issues are basically the same as they've always been in every labor dispute, which is. Pay and working conditions. What do you think? Well,
2: I would actually, I would actually disagree with you on that. I and I, I'll address the AI piece, but I think fundamentally, this writers and actors strike is about technology, and it's about the technological innovation of the past 15 years since there was the, la- the last writers' strike. Which is in the last 15 years, we've seen the rise of streaming and a total transformation of the entertainment industry, really because of streaming. So the first issue that's at the heart of these negotiations, and there are really three main issues for the writers. The first issue is compensation for streaming. A lot of streaming compensation is flat fee payment. And writers and actors do not get paid in success. In TV, it's very different. If, someone, if, if, if a TV show is syndicated and it plays over and over and over and there are ads attached to it, then you get paid more the more people see your content. Um, it makes sense, especially if the, the platforms are making more revenue b- from advertising. Up until very recently, there was no ads on Netflix. There were no ads on Disney+. Plus. So it makes sense to me that writers or actors are saying, hey, you profit more, not just on a flat fee basis, but also on an advertising basis if our content is more successful and we want to be paid more in success. So I think that the first and key point here is payment based on the technological impact of the the, the streaming revolution, and adjusting uh, compensation on streaming to match that. So I think that's the first technological revolution. So that's the last 10 years. Looking at the next 10 years, the question is AI. And, uh, and I think that it, it makes sense that this is about how tech is going to change people's jobs, um, consumption of content, and how should you be paid fairly based on that. The AI piece is really interesting to me because, yes, there are so many unknowns and what they're negotiating over in many ways is to set a regular cadence of evaluation of this because we don't even know what the capabilities are going to be in, in 2 or 3 years and these contracts have an impact not just on these this generation of writers but even on writers who are just starting their careers right now and if you go back to the 1988 writers strike the the issues that were negotiated then still have an impact decades later to me the AIP so the AIP has a couple of elements to it one is um, you know, If you're a studio, part of the AMPTP, and you employ writers, you have to employ Writers Guild writers, and you have to pay them based on certain rules. They want to make sure that AI is not being used to rewrite their content, um, um, and that their content is not being used to train AI. So this is one of these complex things, is they want protections around it. And basically, they're saying, until the AI is part of the Writers Guild, you have to treat me as a, as a Writers Guild writer, not let this effectively non-WGA entity, which is AI, rewrite my work. Um, I actually don't think it's totally irrelevant because people are already using AI to brainstorm. So many writers I know use it as a brainstorming tool if they're trying to, you know, sort of like a thesaurus in many ways, like trying to come up with another word for something or another way of describing something. So I don't think it's totally irrelevant. And then on the actor side, I, um, I did an amazing story, which I want all of your readers to go check out. With NBC Nightly News showing it how the visual effects technology is being totally transformed by AI, and this was back in I think April, so before the strike started, we uh, worked with these these companies that did an AI. I sc- did a three D scan of my face, and then they um, then they basically created a mask of my face that someone could wear by standing in front of a camera, so you could clone me. And we were joking about how like I would to have to wake up at four in the morning because you could just someone else could wear my face and do my report. Um, but the reality is, is that this is great technology that studios want to use for things like stunt doubles. If you could scan an actor's face, then you could have a stunt double do the stunt with the actor's face on them um, and the like. Or we did another demo of turning me with a company called Wonder Dynamics, walking you know, down a movie set, you could turn me into a robot or an alien and save literally hundreds of hours of work that needed to be done previously. So I think there's the piece of this where this AI technology is going to accelerate processes and help cut costs. And that is something that's true across many industries. But there is a sort of protection issue where when I was doing um, this scan of my face, the company had to reassure me that they were gonna get rid of all of the data um, and not use it or license it out um, and have them able to profit from it. Luckily it takes up a lot of space so they would be happy to delete it after the fact. But writers or, want to make sure that they're not going to be rewritten without their consent by non-WGA entity, and actors want to make sure that their image and likeness is not going to be used without their, without their permission and without them profiting from it. So I think it's complicated, um, and no one knows where this is going to all go. But um, if if technology is the driver of change in the industry, it makes sense that these are key sticking points right now.
0: Totally. So here's the pushback to the writers and the actors, and and maybe there's somewhere in the middle. But I I wanted like at least pose it to you and kind of hear what you think about this, um, thinking about their perspective. So we've had a number of conversations on this show with you know people in the tech world, investors, and CEOs talking about the impact on jobs. And almost every one of them says this will lead to net addition of jobs and net addition of creativity. So for instance, Aaron Levy, who's the CEO of Box, was here a couple weeks ago and talked about this from a, you know, a, a creator's perspective, where if you're a director, you waste a ton of time figuring out what shot, what angle, you know, when you're going to do it. And then you're, you're effectively, your creativity aperture is limited because you spend all this time working on the logistics. And he talks about how maybe generative AI could, for instance, let the director pick from those hundred different shots and then they go shoot the best one. We also like this week in big technology and it's going to be syndicated in the Boston Globe, which I'm pretty stoked about. We wrote a story, Doug and I, about how um, looking at various different industries and how this AI threat has, has impacted them. One of them is the legal industry. And there's already technology out there that can scour documents, and you can converse with them. It could do, you know, basic discovery for you. It can highlight differences. And the firms that are using this stuff have not actually, you know, fired lawyers. Same with radiologists, by the way. I mean, there's some interesting studies coming about, out about whether AI is actually helping radiologists. But for company, for organizations like the Mayo Clinic, which have AI in place detecting different structures within the body, um, they're actually using this to make up for staffing shortages. And they're using this to be more effective as, you know, in their radiology work. So I'm curious, and and, and this is kind of why, (laughs) and maybe I'm fighting a losing battle here, but this is why I'm curious about whether this is like, you know, how big of an issue this is going to be in the future, because ultimately it seems like in most industries, this is something that augments versus replaces or even minimizes the amount of work that creative people need to do. What
2: do you think? Well, look, I think you're what you're effectively talking about is AI being an efficiency tool, Mm -hmm. and I've been doing a series for CNBC and that that um, uh, visual effects story I did for NBC Nightly News was part of it. We're calling it AI impact. And what I fundamentally believe is that separate from the chat GPT's of the world, AI is going to have an impact on every single industry, whether it's advertising or the legal field or medicine. It will, it will offer new tools. Many times that will be sort of dramatically enhanced capabilities, whether it's for a surgeon in the operating room looking for real-time guidance, or whether it's for um, lawyers getting the the power of a million paralegals at their fingers at the touch of a button. So I have no doubt that efficiency is going to be a key benefit of, of AI. I think the creative fields are a funny thing, uh, in part because of this question of, Of whether, you know, art is all derivative in some way, shape or form. And you could go back to sort of those iconic Shakespearean narratives to think about sort of the underlying narratives that inspire every writer or director or creator. Um, but I think there's this question of whether it makes sense to have my content as a creator train AI to create content at a lower cost and, um, In debating this with a lot of people, because I love to talk about AI, it's all I think about on many days. um, I think the shift is going to be away from whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing, but more towards this question of attribution. And I think that writers um, and actors would be more okay. I don't say they would be okay. I can't speak on behalf of them. I'm neither a writer nor an actor, but I think that there is a sense that AI would be more fair if attribution is given. So, for instance, You know, for actors, if they license, if they are, if their images and their performances are being used to train AI, why not give them a a cut of payment on that? Or for writers, if their script is being used to train AI, they should get a percentage royalty anytime part of their work is used in the creation of content for something else. So I think the rise of focus on attribution is going to be the real conversation in the next couple of months. And I think that the the commentary that we got from News Corp in their earnings yesterday, I don't know how much you caught of this, but the CEO, Robert Thompson said that they see AI as a great opportunity, not just in driving efficiency, but also from a monetization standpoint. Barry Diller, he's been leading the charge with a bunch of publishers saying they're gonna make sure they get paid if their content is used by, by AI. So I think that, yes, it can be a great tool um, yes all content is in some way inspired by something else I think truly derivative content that at this point is just created by AI is not going to be as effective as something that has a human voice I mean I think the success of something like Barbie or Oppenheimer which is you know really has a human touch and a, an art like a clear artistic vision of a person um, is always going to be or at least for now going to be more effective but I think the real question is just if 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 human, content is training ai what is the attribution model going to be so those people get paid
0: yeah that's what i want to ask you about like how do you negotiate this i mean it's such it seems like so much of it is still so far in the future um when when you think about these two sides sitting down at the bargaining table like do they kind of like sit down is it kind of like writing a show where they sit down and dream up like the different possibilities and they're like all right well if this happens like then we'll do this
2: Well, you mean, you mean between the writers and the, and the the studios, I mean, I think this, I think this is a broader question just than the writers and the studios. Mm. I think right now we have a world where you have Barry Diller leading the publishers, you have Robert Thompson at News Corp. They're saying if our content goes into any of your AI engines and it is spitting out free answers for people, you're going to pay us. This becomes illegal. Battle, and I'm sure there's going to be a new generation of lawyers that is expert in these AI issues, and they're going to have very, very lucrative careers. I think between the writers and the and the AMPTP, at this point, they just want some basic guarantees um, and probably the promise of a meeting every year and to be able to renegotiate the the AI issues every year. I mean, the real yeah, you have is to just know, put how, it how in how the future. Strong the capabilities are.
0: exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We had Matt Wood from Amazon uh, Web Services who runs their he's vp of product there and he does like a lot of the ai stuff um and i asked him like well what are you is, are you because they're building their own models and i'm like is, are your models ingesting big technology content can you say definitively uh that you're not and he's like yeah we probably are and if so like why are yeah. you protesting and that was like kind of so, attribution opening for me. that's why it's yeah like, yeah <laughs> but but then then attribution
2: mm-hmm. is the new name of the
0: game absolutely Julia Burstyn is here with us. Um, she is a correspondent and at CNBC and has a great book out called um, When Women Lead. We're going to talk about that and more when we come back on the other side of this break. And Julia, before we go to break, I just want to say we got some fans here. Uh, Joffrey Khalid, uh, who's watching with us on LinkedIn, calls you the best reporter for media and tech news and what's going on behind the scenes. I agree with that. Thank you for the feedback, Joffrey. We'll be back right after this. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast Friday edition with Julia Burston. She is a senior media and technology correspondent at CNBC and the author of When Women Lead, What We Achieve, Why We Succeed, and What We Can Learn. It's available and uh, out now, so go pick up a copy. One more media story to go with um, before we jump into the book and then preview the Code Conference, which you're going to be a big part of, Julia. Um, so I think it feels like Disney, uh, and, and maybe it's a broader question than this, um, has been floundering a little bit. Obviously, there's leadership issues. Um, we now There's a story this week that they're going to start enabling online betting. Um, very interesting also that... that um, that barstool sports has sort of announced a divorce with, with Penn gaming. So I'm kind of curious what you think about that, um, because that was supposed to be the ultimate like content and sort of commerce or gaming partnership. Um, But, but it seems like with a company like uh, Disney, there's been, you know, obviously the leadership, the strategy, it seems like it's flailing. And I'm kind of curious as someone who watches this company so closely, can you make sense of, of what's happening there? What's going on with the strategy?
2: So I wouldn't say that Disney is failing. I would say that the whole industry is under a lot of pressure. And I think that every media company was chasing Netflix um, and wanting to be valued like Netflix, i.e., like a tech company, um, when they were all really media companies. And ultimately, they were chasing subscriber growth. And um, at the end of the day, they had to realize that they're not going to be measured on subscriber growth, but on profitability. And I think even Netflix realized that they had to no longer just chase these subscriber uh, numbers, but think more about profitability. And there's been a whole reshaping in the industry as a result of that. The question is, how much is broken because they chase these metrics that ultimately um, are less relevant uh, in the real world and certainly less relevant now and going into next year? Um, Disney is interesting. And I've been covering this industry for 17 and a half years at CNBC. I've been at CNBC for forever. And... I remember the moment when Bob Iger said in an interview, in an earnings interview one August, that ESPN was having some real issues and that cord cutting was starting to become really problematic. That was the interview where I was like, now the whole industry is changing. And it really was changing in part, large part because of streaming. The fact that ESPN is finally making a big sports betting partnership and teaming up with Penn Sports... Is just the latest iteration of trying to transform the profitability and focus, transform the company to focus on profitability and to reinvent itself away from a reliance on linear television. ESPN stayed away from sports betting for so long. Because of concerns about betting not being family friendly and Disney being a big family company, the reality is is that the world has changed. Right. To me, I cannot this wait for there to be
0: them. like a sports book inside the Magic Kingdom. <laughs> Sorry, <go ahead. laughs> yeah.
2: Maybe in California Adventure, they allow alcohol in California Adventure. They might in California Adventure, not mm-hmm. not in, not in at Disneyland proper. To me, it's just that the world has changed. If you have sixteen states where you can operate legally, and it's just not as big of a thing anymore. And I think this is just catching up with culture. And it, it feels it feels fine from a brand perspective. Um, but I think there's this bigger question of it's low hanging fruit. They're going to generate $150 million in revenue that's most in profits. It's really going to flow straight to the bottom line. And then there's more upside from there. Um, and then I think this also you know, really fits into the other changes that we've seen out of the company. Also this week, Disney announced major price hikes for their streaming apps that do not have ads in them. So if you want ad-free Disney Plus or ad-free Hulu, they're raising the prices by $3 for e- a month for each of those apps. That is a meaningful price increase. What they're really trying to do is drive subscribers towards the ad supported models, dual revenue stream. They get a subscription revenue. They also get ad revenue. This is like back to the old cable TV days, but they love the dual revenue stream. And we're, this is all part of this trend that I'm calling streamflation. You heard it here first streamflation all the streamers because they're so focused on profitability they are going to be raising prices and i think this is going to push consumers to decide do they want to watch ads just like the old days or are they going to figure out which of these services are not essential and, and drop some of them
0: i signed up for hbo max this week uh or i guess it's just called you max, max, max. Now. yeah which it's is max. like you
2: up for i Netflix. had
0: hbo max on my phone and i was like all right renew and it's like you need to download a new app called max very confusing so anyway, speaking of rebrandings going on and did
2: you? But, and you didn't decide to dump it. They have been having Correct. some churn issues because they know that a lot of people will find that friction. Well, I had dumped it, up. so
0: I, you know, I it's expensive. It was like sixteen dollars per month without ads, and I hadn't had it for uh, probably like a year or something like that. But I, I signed up for two reasons. One, the Jets are on hard knocks, so I have to watch that, and then two, um, my wife and I, we, uh, and I'm really late to the game, but we just started watching Game of Thrones. Let me tell you guys, if you haven't watched Game of Thrones,
2: I thought late it was probably
0: game. time she would read the book and was talking to me about it. I was like, yep. all right, let's watch this show. Great show. Um, but yeah, I'm astonished at how much at how much it costs. And this idea of streamflation really is like it's so true. I mean, everything's going up across the board.
2: Spotify right. raised their prices. And then also NFL just yesterday announced that for their streaming services, they are raising prices as well. Sports, it's the only gonna be the only game in town this this fall with um no new scripted shows coming to TV because of the strike. So I think there's gonna be a big focus on sports. And I think everyone's trying to figure out how high prices need to go for profitability, how much consumers are willing to pay. Um, But I just this week has been a slew of price increases.
0: Yeah, and so last question for you about this. You mentioned sports. I'm just kind of curious how how big is how big of a role does sports still play, or is it like basically the only thing keeping the bundle intact outside of CNBC? Um, you know, I'm I'm curious, like because like you know ESPN and Disney, right? You're already saying that like it's kind of uh, leading them to places that aren't traditional for Disney, like betting. Um, but it's obviously so crucial to the business that it has to be there. So. As far as like the whole TV ecosystems, ecosystem goes, like where do sports fit in, and uh, and do they even get further solidified now in the middle of this strike?
2: Well, I've always said sports is the glue holding the cable bundle mm-hmm. together. If you wanted, up until recently, if you wanted to watch live sports, you paid for a pay TV bundle. You had no choice. That was it. That was your one game in town. And as Netflix started, you know, emerging and all these other streaming services, HBO Max, etc., you still needed. You still needed cable TV or a, or, or a, a bundle through Hulu or, or YouTube or one of these other players if you wanted sports. There was a big shift last year when the NFL took its Thursday night games to Amazon. That marked a change. This is the second year of that. Now you can do NFL Sunday ticket, not through DirecTV, but you could do it through YouTube. So we're starting to see this dispersion of sports rights onto these streaming platforms on one hand it's going to be challenging and that consumers are going to have to really know where to go for which it's games. insane
0: trying to figure the, out what's not blacked out is, and what's which, available yeah. yeah
2: yeah and and that's one reason we did see the thursday night ratings decline a bit although roger goodell and other people at the nfl have said um that they do expect the ratings to inch back up once people get used to the cadence of where to find things i, I think what's so interesting about what bob has said about espn he has said it's an it's not a matter of if but when they bring ESPN content direct to consumer. That doesn't mean that ESPN content is not going to also be on TV, but they want to negotiate their rights so they have the ability to both stream direct to consumer for cord cutters and cord nevers, a whole generation of people who have never paid for pay TV, and they also want to have it on TV. They will probably get paid less for those cable TV rights just because of the the fact that it's more ubiquitous. But I think just this question of what happens when, when, when ESPN really goes to direct-to-consumer and what kind of negative impact that has on the pay TV numbers, I think that's going to be really meaningful. I'll also point out that um, David Zaslov in his Warner Brothers Discovery earnings, he said, we have the rights to take a lot of our sports rights like the NBA direct-to-consumer. And the question is how they do that and how they incorporate live sports into their app Max, which you just mentioned. Once sports is no longer unique to the bundle, that's when I think we'll see numbers fall even further. There will always be a, per- per- a percent of the population, particularly older people who keep paying for TV. Um but you know you mentioned it's hard to find, figure out where things are. That complexity is something that I do think needs to be figured out. But if Bob Iger can get the leagues to invest in ESPN, which he is trying to do, Um, And he can get the four major leagues to invest, then it'll be an an incentivized for the leagues as well as ESPN to take everything direct to consumer as well as on linear and figure out just the best way to monetize.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Something has to change there because I feel like every Sunday, especially when I lived in San Francisco, trying to figure out how to get East Coast football on. I mean, my laptop was halfway out the window. Uh, it was very, very frustrating. I
2: bet the NFL has a product for that. They're, they're yeah. willing to charge you to make that easier, I'm
0: sure. No, they, but I was paying, I, so this was a few years ago. I, I won't belabor the point, but I, it was a few years ago. I was paying like 150 like $200 a month to watch the NFL. And, yes. Yeah. And <laughs> that's, it, that's it was too much. And if the Jets were in California, um, like let's say they were even down visiting like the Chargers in LA and I was living in San Francisco, blacked out. So like I was paying all this money. I couldn't get any of the games. So, I mean, there is incentive. You're right to figure it out. It's yeah. just like, anyway, it's has it's been a bit of a slog. I, I do. I do wonder where it goes from here, but like eventually it will get figured out. And then the question is like, what happens to, to TV? So, all right, let's,
2: but you go back to the advertising piece, live TV, live sports. It's the most valuable ad time mm-hmm. period.
0: Yes, definitely. So I don't know. Curious to see where it goes. Yeah. Let's talk about this book. When women lead, um,
2: you got it. got it
0: here. It's been out for a few months. You know, um, I, th- I thought the book was interesting for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it almost seemed like a manifesto of sorts to people making the hiring decisions at the top of companies showing all the, like the positive attributes of like what happens when you have women on your leadership team, you know, am I getting that right? Like it it really, it was
2: hundred percent. And
0: you know, as I was reading through it, I found some of the, these like amazing statistics that you, that you highlight here. Um, so for instance, when it comes to fiscal responsibility, women in leadership are tend to be more responsible on the fiscal end direction of companies, right. When, when women are in the management teams, um, companies have higher scores from employees who believe that they know where the company is heading and then the finance stuff is is fairly is, is remarkable that companies with women in leadership have 48 percent higher earnings and they are 1.7 percent more um their, their growth on the stock market is one percent uh more than than they would be other, otherwise and then you look at silicon valley um silicon valley three percent of vc funding to women and Forty-two percent. That number is declined. It's declined.
2: Now it's less than two percent. Less than two percent. Which
0: is wild. And you have 42 percent of small businesses are owned by women. So, you know, I just threw out a bunch of statistics there. But if people are like who are listening are in are in position to make management hires, um, what do you think that they should should make of all of this? And what would you share to that, share with them after writing the book?
2: Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Um, and yes, everyone should go and go out and and, and read or listen to the book. And it is a bit of a manifesto, and it was very much inspired by my reporting at CNBC. I mean, I've been at CNBC for seventeen years, and I saw this massive disconnect. Um, and as journalists, whenever we see a disconnect, we're always <laughs> curious about it. But disconnect between um, the statistics I was reading and finding about how female-led companies perform better—they yield, uh, they they either go public or sell a year earlier on average. They yield higher returns. To their investors, public companies led by female CEOs outperform. I was seeing all these statistics, and I was personally meeting all these female CEOs, many of whom are running companies for the Disruptor 50 list that I helped run. And I was really inspired by them and their sort of balance of long-term, short-term thinking and strategy, particularly around crisis. So the, the numbers and my personal experience as a reporter indicated that the female leaders have so many um, advantages uh, that that it didn't make sense to me that at the same time I was seeing all these crazy statistics about how underrepresented they are. Um, the statistic that stuck in my head that really is irrational is the fact that now it's less than 2% of all venture capital dollars go to female founders. And so what I wanted to do was highlight how irrational that disconnect was. Um, and and I think that the media narrative has been so much about elevating and celebrating these male CEOs that the the pattern matching in the industry is to say who's the next Mark Zuckerberg. And yes, everyone wants to invest in the next Mark Zuckerberg. He's a genius who created these this multi billion dollar phenomenon. But I think that as part of that narrative, the focus on female founders who are just as smart and have just you know similarly innovative ideas has been overlooked. So the goal of my book is really to highlight why this disconnect is irrational and how whether it's managers or investors, they need to be stripping out their. the the negative impact and pattern matching, and I don't even use the term unconscious bias, but what's effectively unconscious bias to see the opportunity that is sometimes right in front of them and and very much overlooked. And I actually think that now more than ever coming out of the pandemic, the leadership skills and strategies that women are more likely to deploy are more important now than ever. You can't lead a company without having a communal leadership style and pulling in perspectives from across an inevitably far-flung and oftentimes, hybrid organization. Um, you know, the value of empathy as a negotiating tactic is is in, enormous. So I think it's really about focusing on the data over the patterns that have existed for centuries, and that's where you're going to find the real untapped opportunity. Um, I think I was thinking about how I, when you were speaking about how I, I was speaking to a group of male um, private equity and VC, and I mean, I was speaking to a group of private equity and, and uh, VC investors, the vast majority of whom. Were male and they tend to be male, and they were saying to me. Some two came up to me afterwards and said, "Sounds like what you're talking about here is an arbitrage opportunity." I was like, "This, that's exactly how I how I see it." Um, but it's just been it's been fascinating to talk about the book over the past months, being on book tour, and also seeing the reaction both from women and also from companies who are now struggling to retain senior talent. Right around when my book came out, there was a study that came out from Lean and McKinsey. That said, that women at the VP level and above are leaving their jobs in record numbers. And that has massive ripple effects on the culture, not just on younger female employees, but also on male employees. And so I think it's really important to understand what, where these disconnects are and how to identify them.
0: Let's talk about horse racing. Um, one of the most interesting anecdotes in your story is that horse racing is the only sport where um, men and women compete against each other. Or maybe is, is that's correct? Yeah,
2: male and female jockeys. Jockeys, so you have, they're mixed gender yeah. teams, like in sailing right. and in tennis. But mm-hmm. um, I love this horse racing study. I'm glad mm-hmm. you like that one. Yeah,
0: yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what you learned from from seeing the study? Of it was very interesting. I guess a theme today is like betting, but like betters get it wrong <laughs> when they're betting on the female jockeys.
2: Yeah. So, the way so, for my book, I interviewed one hundred and twenty people, and then i I sort of went down various rabbit holes, reading academic research to try to understand why women's uh, approaches were more effective, but also to try to understand why some of these disconnects were happening and um, why there are such massive gender gaps and I found these amazing studies, including this particular one about jockeys, that illustrate why people are underestimated if they are not seen frequently in a certain role. So this great jockey study that I love so much, um, I actually led a chapter with it, I loved it so much. It, um, it basically explains why it, 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 the, the data was analyzed of people betting on, on jockeys, female jockeys versus male jockeys. And what the research found is that the, the fewer women, uh, fewer female jockeys there were in certain types of races, like hurdle races, the more the betting public assumed that those women were going to be bad in that category, and so the more underrepresented a person, a type of person, is in a role, the more the natural human instinct is to assume that they're not going to be good in that role. Female CEOs are rare, therefore, female CEOs must not be very good. That is the natural human assumption. And what I found so interesting is that it's not it's not malice. People aren't say, saying I don't want to like female CEOs. They're saying I don't see a lot of female CEOs. So therefore, they must not be good in those roles. And the, the, the betting data was so interesting that people are betting against their own best interest um, because they're so influenced by these longstanding patterns.
0: Yeah. And then this follow up piece of data was so interesting to me. Um, just right from the book, the same study found that when female CEOs appointees, CEO appointees generated a significant amount of media attention the day of the announcement, the company's stock price declined an average of 2.5 percent in the immediate aftermath. With minimal or no attention, uh, that stock price rose about 2%. I mean, holy crap. Speaking of arbitrage opportunities, like when you see a lot of attention toward a female CEO buy buy that stock.
2: I mean, it depends on the nature of that attention, but it makes me understand why a lot of female founders are really wary of press attention. There have been a lot of of negative stories about um, female CEOs, many times for the same behavior that goes unnoticed when it comes from a male CEO.
0: All right, let's end with the plug. You're going to be uh, at the Code Conference. You're going to be there headlining it with Casey Newton and Neelai Patel. Um, Talk a little bit about what people can expect when it is, why they should go.
2: I'm so excited. Code Conference, September 26th and 27th uh, in Southern California. It's going to be so much fun. We are, Neelai and Casey and I are taking over for Kara Swisher. She will be there. She's going to be doing an interview Um, and it's going to be different. We are not Kara Swisher. She is a legend. We are going to be doing our own spin on things, our own take We have an amazing lineup, including (laughs) Linda Yaccarino to be her next Mm -hmm. big interview. So ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino. I can't wait to see what happens with X in the next month and a half. Um, So we we will surely have a very um, lively conversation about everything she's dealing with there. We have a a range of big names, including Mary Barra, um, the CEO of GM, along with her head of AI, who they recently hired um, from Apple. We're going to be talking about how she's transformed her automaker to really focus on EVs and how they're incorporating AI. And we just announced that we've heard from Bumble is gonna be joining us. She's gonna be talking about how they're using AI and the role of technology and relationships. And as you can guess, AI is gonna be a huge theme throughout the conference. Um, So I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. It's gonna be a great group of attendees, great, amazing lineup on stage. Nilay Nilay and Casey are fantastic. And and you don't wanna miss it. You're gonna be there, aren't you? Yes,
0: I am. Can't wait for it. Good. All right, Julia, thank you so much for joining. This was awesome. So much fun to talk.
2: Really my pleasure, Alex. Happy to come back anytime. anytime.